0: Welcome to the Iran Podcast. I'm your host, Negar Murtaza-V, a journalist and political analyst and a senior fellow at the Center for International Policy in Washington. Today, I'm here at the Middle East Institute, a think tank also based in Washington, D.C., and I'll be speaking to Alex Vatanka, director of the Iran program at the Middle East Institute, author of a great book on Iran that's called Battle of the Ayatollahs, the United States, foreign policy, and political rivalry since 1979. Alex is an expert on Iran's domestic and foreign policies, and he's also working on a forthcoming book about Iran's strategy towards the Arab world. We'll be talking about Iran's domestic sphere a year after nationwide protests against the government. We'll talk about Iran's regional policy towards its neighbors and rivals. And we'll also talk about Iran's broader foreign policy and the shift towards the east and away from the west. Alex, welcome to the Iran podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Nigar. Thank you for having me.
0: It's great to have you. So let's start with the domestic scene in the country. It's been a year since the death in custody of Masa Gina Amini uh, in the custody of the morality police. And the country has seen nationwide protests by women and girls and allies and intersectional community of protesters with political, economic, social grievances against the regime, which also was met with violent and brutal crackdown by the regime. Uh, Human rights organizations have documented about 500 protesters killed, thousands were arrested, a few have already been executed, there are more on the execution row. And so essentially, the regime brought down an iron fist to try to crack down these protests, as they have done in the past. I want you to talk about how you assess the past year from the viewpoint of the protests and dissent, essentially where we are now, and also talk about the reaction of the regime. Like, What does that violence and brutal crackdown tell us?
1: You know, one of the things that sort of I think stands out for most of us who spend almost all our working day looking at Iran is... um, The reaction of the one individual really that matters the most in the context of Iranian decision making process, and that is Supreme Leader Ali Khamenei. So, Ali Khamenei is this 84 year old man who has been the single most important decision maker in that system since 1989. And before then, he was a senior member of the regime as president going back to the revolution in of 1979 so here's Ali Khamenei a first generation revolutionary who was part of that group that brought the Shah of Iran down in 79 and I if I had to guess well if there was one thing Khamenei learned from the 79 revolution and the way the Shah carried himself in the midst of the general movement that sort of rose up against him. The one lesson I think Khamenei learned, which stays with him, and which is shaping the way he is ruling over Iran today as supreme leader, is the Shah showed weakness back in 79. And if he hadn't shown weakness, he might have stayed in power, and the monarchy might still be around, and we wouldn't have this thing called Islamic Republic today. I think that's the one lesson Khamenei learned. Shah was indecisive, and That brought him down. It galvanized the revolutionary movement. But there are other lessons one could take. Um, But I also would point out, maybe maybe Khamenei is uh, over-reading into this. Maybe instead of looking at the Shah as someone who was indecisive, weak, unwilling to stay in the country to fight for his throne, maybe Shah actually knew full well that's, that was an option to him, but he decided not to, because he knew the cost would be killing of thousands and thousands of people, and the Shah wasn't going to go there. And he had made it very clear he wasn't interested in staying in power at any cost. And that, I think, is a big difference maybe with Khamenei. I think Khamenei is willing to stay at a much higher cost not necessarily at any cost but i think at a higher cost and certainly there was the case with the shah in 79 so that and that has shown itself in, in terms of how the regime has come out and played its cards which really is narrowed down to using force intimidation coming out there and hitting your opponents head-on is the best way to stay in power. And as you pointed out in the introduction, they've killed over 500. We don't know what the exact numbers are. Thousands have been in prisons. The use of uh, torture and torture methods has has suddenly become the big game in town, if you're the Islamic Republic. All this, again, I want to link it back to 79, is that this is not the moment to compromise. This is not the moment to listen to the young. This is the moment to put the fear of God in them, because that's the only thing they understand. So what we've seen is targeting of people's eyes. We've heard of deliberate, at times, disinformation campaigns about the horrible things that happen in the prisons. Why? Because they want (laughs) to get people to keep their kids off the street. They want to scare the moms and dads so they keep their kids from going to the street to protest. And this is very much something that's of concern to Khamenei and, and his regime, because Iranian protest movement has never been this young. It's becoming younger and younger. It used to be something that people of certain age would do, mostly in the upper 20s, early 30s. Now we're talking teenagers. And let me say this as my final point, uh, uh, Nagar. This this phenomena of a younger, restless, angry demographic that is not ready to go home will come back out and will defend what they think is their right to ask for more political representation, economic opportunities and essentially a ruling class that in one way or another is is reflecting their wishes and their hopes and aspirations, which is not the case today, this young demographic is not going anywhere. Now, all Khamenei has done in the best case scenario is, as an 84-year-old man, he's kicked the can down the road. He might keep this regime together for another couple of years, but everyone in Iran, and you don't have to take my word for this, this is being mentioned openly in Iranian media inside of Iran, the country's angry, society's angry, and all sorts of issues. There's anger, what is domestic, the hijab issue, the forced veil, foreign policy, you name it. And this anger, there's no silver bullet. So all Khamenei has done in the last co- uh, year is to keep the pressure, this, this pressure cooker, this making sure it doesn't explode. But eventually it will explode. Most likely it won't explode in his face. But the regime knows that this is not the way forward.
0: Yes, I agree with you Alex and we see this young demographic as you're saying essentially it's a young country 70% under the age of 40 still I believe and it's a population that it feels like they have nothing to lose when they're on the street. I would that would be essentially the scariest mass protest that you can face. These young people with a lot of energy, no prospects for the future, the unemployment, the economic situation, and essentially feeling like they have nothing to lose. Schoolgirls we've seen joining the protests uh, playing a very uh, strong role. So talk about, let's look at the perspective of the protesters or the protests. We know this poses a legitimacy crisis to the regime. But have they posed an existential crisis? Essentially, the iron fist comes down to prevent that existential crisis. As you were saying, this is a matter of existence. Have the protests, and you can look back if you want at previous rounds of protests also, but have the protests been able to bring or get close to that tipping point, we haven't been to that tipping point, but get close to essentially pose an existential crisis. And I'm talking about not just Tehran, not the big cities, but we saw mass protests continuous in Kurdistan. We've seen ongoing protests in Balochistan. In the past, we've seen protests in the Khuzestan, where the Arab population lives in Iran. Has there been any point where it felt like this is getting more than a legitimacy crisis that they understand the population doesn't want them, and rather an existential crisis.
1: I mean, look, I wish I could tell you what the tipping point would look like. Um, but each time, as we've seen over the course of the last 10 years, more people come out, younger demographic. And it used to be the case that protesters in Iran would be, you know, limited to certain parts of the big cities like Tehran. I mean, if you look at the big protest of 99, if you look at the post protest of 2000, nine, and so on. That used to be the case. Now, when there is a protest movement, you see on a map how quickly it spreads from one place to locations, as you pointed out, across the nation. So small villages can suddenly be up in arms. That shows you the failure of the regime overall to deliver. And it's not just on one issue. They're failing to deliver on multiple issues. Now, yes, the young have been the most likely to come out, but that doesn't mean that silent majority of the older demographic doesn't have issues and grievances of their own. They do, and we see that. Pensioners are out, retired teachers and doctors are out. This is a regime that for so long has basically banked on one thing, which I think very much is a reflection of Khamenei's worldview and the man himself let me tell you what i think that is how is someone who believes in not compromising but in sticking to what it is you believe in and pay any price for it to achieve it he looks at anybody who who makes a compromise as likely a victim uh, and the had, hands of their opponents. So he would look at, I mean, he's famously been very preoccupied studying the so-called color revolutions of the last 20-30 years in Eastern Europe, in, cent, in the Caucasus, in countries like Georgia, in, in countries in Central Asia. He sees, and he is preoccupied by the so-called color revolutions, namely the pursuit of the democratic s- systems. He doesn't see that as indigenous he sees that as being fabricated by his foreign enemies. And this is Khamenei's worldview. Everything essentially for him is about his foreign enemies, namely the United States, the Western general, trying to bring his regime down. So when he sees protesters, when he sees angry people in society, instead of actually taking a step back and say, they might have a point, we might have done something wrong, we've obviously upset them, take the issue of the forced, uh, forced hijab or veil. Instead of just trying to understand why the younger demographic in Iran just have a very different view on religion, the practice of religion. Instead of doing that, quickly his Ministry of Intelligence comes up with this random number of 15 foreign intelligence services having been behind this plot. Again, it's just the narrative, day in, day out. The narrative is what they call in Persian, Dushman, the enemy. Listen to Khamenei's speeches, and when he's looking to give you an answer to why people are angry, it's always the fault of the doshman, the enemy, this foreign entity. This is, this is going to be, I think, um, the problem for him because the problems are not going away. They're getting deeper, and they're spreading across the nation. He doesn't have a solution. When would that tipping point come? I don't know, I wish I could sit, tell you it would happen on this date, but look at 1979. Who would have, who would have uh, anticipated that the Shah of Iran, this individual who ruled over the country for about 40 years almost, that suddenly over the course of a few months, his great armed forces decided not to fight for him and the Iranian society essentially wanted him out and that's how the Shah fell. Uh, was there one issue? No, there wasn't one issue. There were multiple of issues that came together. But we see that almost happening now in Iran. The big issue, and I'll stop here, is what has Khamenei thought about in terms of the succession when he goes away? How does he think the system will stay together? And I hope we can get to that uh, topic later
0: on. Yeah. So actually, Alex, you got ahead of me. I wanted to ask you about the issue of succession. And I think now is probably a good time. You've studied um, the supreme leader in these dynamics very much. Um, so we know this issue of succession will come up sooner or later at some time. And I want you to talk about what you think would be the potential shifts, if any, political, social. When that happens, who are the potential successors? We know, for example, Ebrahim Raisi, the current president who was shooed in to the presidency in the last election by eliminating any viable rival. it's understood that at least one faction is trying to prep him sort of for that same path that Khamenei took being a president and then eventually landing in a Supreme Leader's seat. Is that, is he a viable candidate as a successor? Or is there also the talk of a council of not just one leader, but a leadership council? Or do you see that this as being a moment of chaos, a moment of maybe consolidation of power by, let's say, the Sapa, the IRGC? What is your assessment of what would happen and the potential succession when that moment comes?
1: Well, I can tell you for sure it would be a very sensitive point in the history of the evolution of the Islamic Republic. They've only had one succession uh, happen before. That was in summer of 1989. There was no real protocol in place. I mean, essentially on paper... There's a body of senior clerics that sit in this entity called Assembly of Experts that would choose the next Supreme Leader. But in reality, we know it's whoever's got the most political sway and influence on that moment in time when a decision has to be made, that individuals are chosen, if as you pointed out, it will be a single individual. It might be the constitution of the Islamic Republic does allow for a, a different model, in this case, a council of elders. It's It's got its own issues, their proponents and opponents of that. It was also debated in 1989. They decided not to take it. They wanted a single figurehead. They thought that would bring more stability. Let me go back to the big uh, issue of, uh, you know um, is this gonna be a moment um, where the Islamic Republic could go in a different direction. Absolutely, it's a moment for, for that. I mean, 1989 was a moment for that, right? In 1989, you know, some people, including uh, the then uh, Ayatollah Rafsanjani, um, he he did for a while try, and I mean, I don't, I, I'd say this in my book, I compare Rafsanjani's worldview with Khamenei's worldview, Uh, And I don't want to sound like I'm defending Rafsanjani because he was part of some of the darkest things that the Islamic Republic did in the 1980s. But my point in the book is by the time he becomes president in 1989 and in the eight years he's in the presidential palace, Rafsanjani does try and argue for a different Islamic Republic. He does argue for coexistence with the world, listening to the young. Khamenei uh, didn't buy into that argument. And Khamenei, again, has, I mean, I often like to think of Khamenei as somebody who's essentially very fearful of the outside world, which some people might take issue with. But I mean, is he xenophobic? Maybe, but he certainly is not someone who has a track record of wanting to sort of let the world out there Inspire him or, or shape his thinking um, He will take what he needs from the outside world But essentially wants to keep the outside world out and he doesn't travel by the way. I mean Khamenei became supreme leader in 1989 He has not traveled once since 1989 I mean for a religious man It's quite amazing that he doesn't even go to places like Mecca or the holy sites for Shia Islam in Iraq It 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 it, 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 is, it does puzzle me that but that that is his worldview so essentially, personalities and their preferences do matter. So whoever comes after Khamenei will likely have a different personality. Um, and speaking of who might come after Khamenei, look, uh, you mentioned Ibrahim Raisi. He's definitely on the short list. In fact, I think his recent visit here, September 2023, to uh, New York for the General Assembly was an attempt to introduce him and his wife um, to the world. Um, I, I can see why some people think Raisi might be a, a, a likely candidate or a strong candidate. Um, there are a couple of reasons for that. Number one, he's been part of the system from day one, from age of 20. He's had one senior position or another. So he's one of them, if you will. He's not an outsider. There's no big risk taking uh, Raisi and turning him into an next supreme leader. The other thing, he's not someone who's strong politically. So he could be a compromise candidate. I mean, he's not; he doesn't really have big enemies within the regime. So he's someone that the regime overall might be willing to, if you look at the different factions within the regime, consider someone that they can learn to live with. There are other names out there. I mean, including uh, Mojtaba Khamenei, uh, one of the sons of Ayatollah Khamenei himself. I don't see him really being groomed. He's been mentioned. I don't take that seriously. Again, uh, but I want to go back to one other attribute of Ayatollah Khamenei. He has certainly not done anything to pave the way for anyone. I mean, he has not mentioned a named so far at least, where you could think, oh, it seems to be that individual is he his preferred successor. So he is very much someone who wants to remain busy. You see the number of speeches he gives at age of 84, despite years of rumors of his bad health. Well, he's as sharp as any day. And he, so you know, he's very much a micromanager. So I don't think he's ready to go yet.
0: So Alex, let's move back to the current policies of the Islamic Republic. We we can talk about the recent deal, the prisoner swap between Tehran and Washington first, and then I want to talk about the region and the overall foreign policy. But tell me what you see in this agreement, the prisoner swap, the unfreezing of part of Iran's blocked assets from South Korea, which was causing years of tension actually between Tehran and Seoul also. But do you see the Biden administration moving in to a path of more de-escalation, diplomacy? Do you see this as a one-off? We're hearing some potential nuclear steps in the escalation. What is your assessment? Considering also election season has already started here in the US, you and I are sitting in Washington at the center of it, and that the Biden administration doesn't have a lot of time until the end of their first or potentially only term.
1: Yeah, Nagar, I, I look at it this way in terms of the prisoner exchange that ha- happened, I think, on the 18th of September. I mean, on the, uh, there is an agreement of sorts between Washington and Tehran to sort of stay where they are in this sort of informal gray zone. Uh, nobody wants to sign a deal. Nobody wants to, you know, stick their head- necks out and sit in a uh, Swiss or Austrian hotel and sign an agreement the way the last nuclear deal was signed in 2015. Because what if it falls apart? It would be a political embarrassment and Biden team definitely doesn't want to go there now. And I don't see any signs that uh, Supreme Leader Khamenei is ready to go there. I know there'll be some rumors lately that he's okayed uh, the idea of direct negotiations again between the Iranian side and the American side. If that's true, I think that's good news. I don't understand why they can't have direct negotiations. Um, but fundamentally, here's where I think we are. Uh, Khamenei doesn't have a uh, desire to gamble big on the American issue. He would, If you asked him, he would say, we've tried this repeatedly, and each time the Americans have burned us, so why try again? That's his bottom line. The Biden team probably, and, and given President Biden's focus is basically on domestic issues, uh, the Biden team is happy enough that the Iran nuclear issue or tensions with Iran does not blow up. As long as it doesn't become a crisis, then I think they're happy with where we are, this informal understanding. And how does this informal understanding look like? Well, the United States has, I don't know, thousands of sanctions on Iran. But basically what the Biden administration has decided to do is not to enforce those sanctions. Right? So they can the Iranians sell some oil, they get some money into their bank accounts. They're not gonna sur- they're not gonna thrive as an economy. They're doing much worse than their neighbors. You look at the Saudis, look at the Emiratis, look at everybody in Iran's neighborhood, they're way ahead in terms of economic planning. But as long as the Iranians get enough to s- sort of have another day and survive, it seems to be enough for them. And America's happy with that. As long as they don't create a crisis. And a crisis could be anything too provocative against one of U.S. partners in the region, Israel, others. It could be something very provo- provocative on a nuclear front, like, for example, weaponizing their nuclear program, which they are not going to do. So we're going to be where we are now in this sort of managed crisis mode. Um, maybe if there is another Biden administration, that would open up space uh, for a more you know, serious attempt at a broader, deeper dialogue between the two. But I doubt it's going to happen before the U.S. elections.
0: And as sort of an extension of that, as you're saying, Khamenei has been mistrusting or wary of of this engagement with the US mainly, but also with Europe, especially after the previous, the Trump administration pulled out of the deal. I think the Iranians were banking on the Europeans, uh, sort of compensating, as they stayed in the JCPOA, compensating economically, and then they slowly realized that that's not an option, that uh, the Europeans would have strong political statements against the pullout, but not necessarily um, compensate for it economically. And we've seen this continuous shift to the east in iran's foreign policy away from the west i would say exacerbated by the u.s pull out of the jcpoa um, and now we see iran essentially siding with russia and the attack on ukraine trying to look more to the big powers in asia china the others um, and also with the new trips right trips to um, africa latin america how do you assess this shift to the East? Do you see this as a continuous and sustainable shift as Iran decided? Because with a more moderate or reformist camp, there was this outlook of we need the East, but we also need the West. Are we seeing a complete shift to the East and away from the West? Do you see this as something that will continue? Are there ways that may change this shift or are they trying to diversify? What's your assessment?
1: Look, it would benefit the Iranian national interest to diversify their foreign policy. And a principal thing they could do is to uh, have a serious dialogue with the United States, put the bad blood behind them, and start uh, a new chapter and look for their national interest. Nobody, I don't think anybody would dispute the fact that not having relations with the still, to this day, single most important global actor is in is in Iran's interest. Of course it's not. Iran has paid dearly for 44 years for not having relations with the United States. You could measure that in all sorts of ways. Uh, and I think, you know, even regime senior members know that. But what they, they would tell you, if they were frank, is that, well, if we let the Americans in right now, what would that do to the balance of power in Tehran? Because the fear, certainly in the mind of Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader, is that the Americans will come in, the Western general will come in and try and empower the so-called more moderate forces within the regime at the expense of the power that the hardliners today hold. So U.S. issue, the the issue of should you have relations with the United States, it's not just about foreign policy. It's very much a domestic power political issue, right? And that's what I, I think is going on here. And, and so when you can't have relations with the West, you're stuck with whatever you can have. Now, Iran has for some time, this is not President Biden's doing, this is not President Trump or Obama. Since year 2000, Iran has shifted away from, uh, in terms of trade, from Western Europe towards China for two reasons china was rising economically Ro- china has over the course of the last uh, uh, quarter century become much more of a in enabled a, 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 a powerful economic partner used to be right so that's the a key factor for for the Ch- iran china relations and politically Iran has either failed or has not wanted to improve relations with the United States. So when you put those two factors together, the Iranians couldn't resolve the difference with the Americans and Chinese were suddenly a better, more powerful partner economically. What you've seen is this sort of shift by the Iranians towards the Chinese. Again, the Chinese are important for them. They're their single largest trading partner. They do buy a lot of Iranian petrochemicals, crude oil, and they do sell a lot to Iran. But Iran would benefit immensely if they could perhaps sell some of their products to China's competitors out there in the global market. The fact that they don't have that option is a net loss for the Iranians. And by the way, before I stop, don't forget, China is getting a lot of Iran's, for example, crude oil from the reports that we see at a discount rate. That discount, when you put those dollars together at the end of the year, we're talking not thousands or millions, but billions potentially in discounted Iranian oil to China. It's not only bad for Iran. It's actually also bad for the United States, given U.S.-Chinese rivalry. So there are different ways of looking at it, but I think fundamentally Iran's look east policy is because politically they've handicapped themselves, put handcuffs on themselves, and they can't have a full healthy relations that also includes the Western world.
0: And finally, Alex, I want to talk about Iran's regional policy. I know you're working on a book about Iran's strategy towards the Arab world. I'm looking forward to it. Um, there has been some shifts, I would say, in the policy. I want to ask you if you think this is uh, the doing of the new administration. Is this something that the Nizam or the Islamic Republic had been looking for? There's sort of a detente with the UAE. We saw an agreement with Saudi Arabia brokered by China. And this is also simultaneously as the Abraham Accords continues to be expanded israel normalizing with the arab world how that impacts iran's outlook to the region is it creating a sense of urgency for tehran for example between uh, iran and saudi arabia or is it something that's just uh, going on uh, on its own in parallel so talk about how you see the regional policy from tehran's viewpoint um, changing or shifting and how they're trying to manage their relationship with their neighbors, especially the rivals?
1: Um, you know, in regard, there's so many moving parts to this. There's so many different states. Each of them have their own issues. So for example, let's take Iran-Saudi detente. I certainly don't think the Biden administration was against it. I don't think the Biden administration promoted it either. I think that was something that the Saudis and the Iranians, uh, uh, you know, out of their own Interest came to uh, decide was the best path forward. Uh, in in summary, the Saudis are focusing on building up their economy. They want to create a new, um, if you will, contract with the young in Saudi Arabia, which includes much stronger Saudi economy, emphasis on Saudi nationalism, not emphasis on Islam. It used to be that in the pursuit of political Islam around the world, the Saudis would engage the Iranians in tit-for-tat rivalries across the Middle East and beyond, from Afghanistan to Iraq to Lebanon. The Saudis are not interested in playing that game anymore. They want to focus on their nation. That's what they're saying. It looks like that's what they're doing. Now, if that's what Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, ends up doing, given that he's only 38, I think, and he might be around as king, um, for decades to come that would be a very different Saudi Arabia So right away one important outcome here is that the Iranians will have lost the traditional rival. their traditional liver that they used to be rivals with is playing a different game. they're investing they're thinking in economic terms they're not they're not interested in chasing the Iranians the streets of of Beirut or Baghdad anymore. So what will Iran do? Will Iran also change tact? We it focus on its economy? That would be my hope, and I think that would be the hope of many inside of Iran and also in Washington, because everybody wants an Iran that is more interested in its national interest, where the, a better economy has to be playing much bigger role than it does today. That would be the hope. But look, for now, we shouldn't be getting too optimistic. Essentially, what the Saudis are doing in terms of their talks the Iranians, which are should be welcome. It's great development, but it's not very deep yet. It's not deep yet. It could fall apart any moment. But what they're doing basically is saying to, to themselves, to the world, and to some extent to the Iranians, look, we want to build a wonderful, you know, economic enterprise here. And we can't afford you, our neighbor, just a few hundred miles north of us with your missiles and drones arsenal threatening our economic investments. So we have to de-escalate with you and make sure you don't attack us the way Iran attacked them in 2019, we do it. But that doesn't mean they see the same world. Saudi Arabia, in contrast to Iran, as we were talking about, Saudi Arabia can have relations with the United States, but it can also have relations with China, with Russia, with the Europeans. They haven't put handcuffs on themselves. Saudi Arabia joined BRICS just a few weeks ago, which is this counterweight to Western powers led by Russia and China. The Saudis were invited to join BRICS. It's a pretty big deal. But a few days later, we read that Saudi Arabia is also holding talks to the United States about a potential security pact with the United States. That is pretty formidable what they've done. They have options, they play the different global powers against each other. Iran can do any of that. Iran is beholden to Russia and China. When President Vladimir Putin calls Iran and says, I want drones in the war in Ukraine, Khamenei might not like the idea, but he's not in a position to say no to the Russians. And that's the tragedy of Iran foreign policy today.
0: Well, on that note, Alex, I want to thank you so much for hosting me in this beautiful building in the heart of Washington, D.C., the Middle East Institute, and for joining the Iran podcast.
1: Thank you, Nigar. Wonderful to be with you, and thanks for the opportunity.
0: Thank you. That was Alex Fatanha, director of the Iran program at the Middle East Institute in Washington, D.C. He's also author of the book, which I encourage you to read, The Battle of the Ayatollahs. And the United States foreign policy and political rivalry since 1979. And thank you for tuning into the Iran Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app and leave a comment and a review for us. You can follow us on Twitter or X at Iran Podcast where we post about new episodes. And until next time, I'm your host, Nega Mortazavi. Goodbye.